Our Bible reading this morning is from the very last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16. And the last verses, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Every gospel ends with a commission, with a send-out message to go out and make disciples of all nations. And Mark has his version as well. So Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. We hear God's word. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord has spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Don't you love that phrase? The Lord working with them. Still, he works with the church today. Confirming his word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So yeah, that's really where Mark ends. It ends with the church being called to be the embassy of Christ, the embassy of his kingdom to the world. We know Christ is victorious, and so the message we bring is one of victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great message. It's a message of good news. It's a message of hope in the light of all the things we see happening in our day. But you know, as you look at this passage, you read this passage, you begin to see little markings and little debates. There's a debate today whether or not this passage, Mark 16, 9 through 20, really belongs to the Bible, whether it really belongs to the Gospel of Mark, because some of the earliest texts don't have it. You notice that the New King James Version assumes that it belongs to Scripture, and rightly so, I believe. Even though there's contentions, lots of writing about it, whether it belongs or not, it seems like the natural ending to this gospel, the gospel of Mark. I mean, imagine if this gospel ended with verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It ends with fear then. 
To end Mark at verse 8 makes it very abrupt, makes it a very unnatural ending, doesn't it? But I think we need to look at the beginning of Mark and the end of Mark, and you see a number of parallels here. Because the Gospel of Mark begins with, if you look at Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, it begins with the coming of the kingdom in Jesus. Right? He is the life of the kingdom. If you want life, he's the life of the kingdom. Jesus is. He came to Galilee and he declared the good news of the kingdom. And he said this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. But the way to get in is through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and belief in the gospel. And you see the signs accompany the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up to life. And then you come to the cross. And what happens at the cross? The kingdom of Satan is destroyed. The head of Satan is crushed. Brothers and sisters, we live among defeated enemies. Please understand that. Enemies are not stronger than the church of Jesus Christ. The enemies are not stronger than Christ. Satan has been defeated. So we live among defeated enemies. And you notice that in Christ's resurrection. In his resurrection, God has set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Daniel 2.44. You see the, the fulfillment of that prophecy of Daniel 2.44 right here. It shall never be destroyed. And that's where Mark concludes. Mark 16. It begins in Galilee. And now it ends in Galilee in light of Mark 16, verse 7, where the angel tells the women to go, uh, to tell the disciples, because Jesus will go before them into Galilee. Wow, it doesn't end with fear, but it ends with the preaching of his message, the message of the kingdom, which is also accompanied by signs. The whole gospel was the preaching of the message accompanied by signs, and now the entire church age is the preaching of the message accompanied by signs. So understand, we are not waiting for his kingdom to come. It's here. It really is here. Now, the fullness of it is not yet here. That comes at his return. But we have to understand that his kingdom doesn't get less, smaller, 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 smaller. It's growing. It's increasing. It's expanding. You look over the last 2,000 years, the number of believers, the number of churches, the number of embassies that are just popping up all over the place and all the nations and all the cities of the earth. Wonderful to see the work of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, so, and you too are his embassy on earth. Wow. The church is the embassy of his kingdom. What's that mean? Embassy? What's an embassy? We know what an embassy is. On earth, an embassy officially represents its country in a foreign country. So, for example, um, the U.S. has an embassy, a U.S. embassy, which is situated in Ottawa. Okay, there it is, sitting in Ottawa in a foreign country, sending out its ambassadors. Well, likewise, this is a far more glorious embassy far more privileged one. It's one that will always remain. And you notice here, as Christ's embassy on earth, you have three things. 
You have his message. You have the truth. And the second thing is, we see in verses 15 to 18, you have his commission. And finally, 19 and 20, you have Jesus' presence and power, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But first of all, you have his message. So what is the message in brief? What's the message in short? It's this. The crucified Jesus, risen from the dead, is Lord and King. There's a lot in there, I know. There's a lot of implications for that, for what it means to bend the knee to Christ in repentance and faith and finding life in him. But it's the crucified Jesus, risen from the dead. He is Lord and King. That's the message. Yeah, it means to believe and submit to him. He's the king. But there's a question here. There's a problem here, isn't there? If you look at this passage, there's one big problem. Christ's ambassadors here, the nucleus of the embassy, the 11, they're not believing. They're not believing this message. That's what we see in verses 9 through 14. Verse 14 speaks of what? It speaks of their unbelief. Not only their unbelief, but of their hardness of heart. When you think hardness of heart, what do you think? Something that's dry, stubborn, right? So there's a twin sin. The worst sins is unbelief and hardness of heart, from which all other sins come from. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. Oh, it's not a problem for Jesus, right? The one who arose from the dead, who conquered death. It's not a problem for him. But it's man's problem. You know, he, Christ himself, is the one who's able to make room for himself, where he becomes Lord in the hearts and lives of his elect. And he's the one who, who makes his kingdom to grow throughout the world. But you notice here in verses 9 through 14, three times Jesus sends messengers to his own while they're supposed to be his ambassadors. He's been working with them for three years. Three times he sends his disciples, or he sends messengers to confront them with the message of Christ the King. And the first messenger is whom? It's a woman. The one who was at the tomb, who witnessed the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene. I mean, she experienced Christ's deliverance in her life, right? Out of her was cast seven demons. That's the fulfillment of evil, seven, right? The completion of evil. The Lord had delivered her from it. We read here that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So even as they're mourning and weeping, it's not a repentance of mourning and weeping. It's just unbelief and hardness of heart. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, it says here, they did not believe. They had the testimony, the testimony from Mary. They had the word, the word of God, but they didn't believe. As a matter of fact, they refused to believe. That's their problem. It's their fault. They refused to believe in spite of their sorrow. They refused to believe and this is important, they refuse to believe even when this is the answer to their problems. 
Think about the problems in our world. You know, the mourning and weeping that goes on. But the answer is before that. It's in Christ. Second attempt. You know, the Lord is so gracious, right? He comes to, he comes to us repeatedly, calling us to believe. And he does it here too. Verse 12 and 13. Again, he sends. This time he's going to send two witnesses. As a matter of fact, what does the scripture say? With two witnesses, a matter is established. He sends now two witnesses. And it's most likely that these two witnesses were the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24. There's reason to believe that. But it says here in verses 12 and 13, after that, he appeared to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Third time, what happens? First you have the woman, then you have two men, and now you have Jesus himself. He appears to them in Galilee in fulfillment of verse 7. And here you see, brothers and sisters, the kindness and goodness of God, which has appeared in Christ our Savior. This time, what does he do? He severely rebukes them. That's the word there. He severely rebukes them for not believing the word, the testimony. They should have heard and they should have believed what they heard. See verse 13 and 14, or verse 14, I should say. Later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Those two sins, unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They didn't believe their word. You know, Ryan says what Jesus said to Thomas, how blessed are those who don't see and believe. What do we say all this? You know, apart from God's grace, no one would believe. Not a single person would believe apart from God's grace. And the fault for unbelief, the fault for hardness of heart is always in one's own being. It's always his own fault. And you see that apart from the supernatural grace of God by his spirit, no one can believe, no one will believe. That's the, that's the, um, the grip, that's the power of sin. And there's only one who has the power over that. The one who cast out seven demons from Mary. The one who arose from the dead, conquering death itself. He's the only one. He's the one who gives life to the dead. And you know, the fact that you believe, let's think for a moment. It's not simple because our parents believe, but really ultimately it's the wonder of God's grace coming down, giving you life. Because it's only when he gives you life can you then respond in faith. A dead man can never respond. It first must receive life and then respond in faith. It's his work, none of our own. Just reminds me, just quickly, a quick illustration of this. Not long ago, I was sitting at a round table with a number of pastors. And one pastor was in his 50s and he said, he was preaching, but he had never believed the Bible. He never believed it, never believed Jesus. 
And he found himself preaching to the Apostles' Creed and the Holy Spirit worked in his heart and he was converted. And he started preaching what he believed after all those years. Okay, this is the sort of thing that happened to the disciples. <laughs> they're, they're convicted, they're convinced. They personally, from their heart, they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe the message. Thank God for his grace. Because if it weren't for Christ, there would be no ambassadors today from his embassy. He works in their hearts, they believe, and now he says, now you go. I have a job for you. I have a task for you. You'll be my ambassadors. And your job is to make citizens of the kingdom. Not citizens of, certainly we're all citizens of certain nations, but primarily you make citizens of the kingdom to spread the message of the king. And that's a great message because it's not one of, it's, it's one of forgiveness of sins. It's one of eternal life. It's one of being part of his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. Who doesn't want to be part of that kind of kingdom? Throughout history, kingdoms come and fall, right? But not Christ's kingdom. And that brings us to verses 15 through 18, the commission. These 11 men are his representatives on earth. His ambassadors. You see verse 15. Jesus says, Now you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Like the way the other version, the NIV has it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Christ has come to not redeem not only mankind, but all of creation. He's sovereign. He's king over all. His claims or over every creature. His claims are upon the entire creation. All creation is his territory. Our prime minister can claim Canada as his territory. The president of the United States can claim U.S. as his territory. But Christ trumps them all. The entire world, all the nations are in his possession. Psalm 2 says it so beautifully. There's this quote from Abram Kuyper. I'm going to read it slowly because they're so packed. He says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I'll say it again. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. It's his. That's his claim. And it's the truth. Now, I recall a friend, a dear friend, saying to me, true, Jesus is Lord, and he's the only way. But he said, he's the only way for Christians. But he says, others have their way to God too. So we talked about many ways to God, but Jesus is the only way for Christians. That's not true. That's not what Jesus says. He's not a local God, small g, of one area and working and serving alongside other gods of other areas. No, no. He's the only way of salvation for all people. Regardless of what religion we're with, he's the only way. 
He's the only way of salvation for all people. And he shows, as we'll see in verse 19, that his throne is the highest. It's so high, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So yeah, no doubt, all other roads of other religions lead to the precipice. They lead to the cliff. They lead to eternal death. They, they do. They lead to eternal death. There's only one way that leads to the Father, and that's through Christ. Boy, this is what makes unbelief so angry, right? But then again, we understand that because that's what we come out of. It's only by the miracle of God's grace in Christ Jesus. You know, this is why the message needs to be proclaimed, the message of forgiveness and life, because this message is of eternal consequence for every creature. It's either salvation or damnation. There is no gray area. There's no purgatory. It's either salvation or damnation. So clear in verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. You know, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, your baptism is your badge. It's your badge of showing that you belong to Jesus Christ. Believers receive a badge. They belong to Jesus Christ. You are citizens of his kingdom. I can never make sense of why somebody would say, I'm a believer, but not a member of a church. Because one who's not a member of the church, I'm confused. Which side are you on? Are you with Christ or are you against Christ? You just don't know. But being baptized and belonging to Christ and belonging to his embassy, it shows that you belong to him, that you stand with him. You belong to his kingdom. When a country is at war, the ambassador speaks. And what do the citizens do? The citizens share what the ambassador says. Did you hear? We're at war. Or did you hear? He won. We won. And that's essentially what the, the Christian message is. We know we're at war, but we're declaring we have won. Christ has won. Come. Come here. Come. Believe. Wow. Christ sent his ambassador with the message of salvation. And the citizens of the kingdom also share that message. What is that message? We said it briefly. But verse 16, if you were to expand it, it might go something like this. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could say that in a, in a uh, sports stadium. All of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this God whom you sin against is holy and righteous. And he's in a position to justly condemn all of us to an eternity in hell. But in his love and mercy, what did he do? He sent his one and only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He obeyed the father perfectly all the way to the cross. He obeyed the law perfectly. Not only that, he suffered the wrath of God on the cross. For whom? For all who believe on him. The invitation is open. 
to all who believe. He died on the third day, he rose again, and today he sits at God's right hand. And all who turn from their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's his promise. Do you believe that? Praise God if you do. But there's also a warning. All who do not turn from their sin and believe on him are condemned. Wow. That's verse 16, essentially, you could say. And spreading their message. Know this, too, that the representatives of his kingdom, the citizens of his kingdom, face a battle. And it's a battle lifelong till Christ returns. And the battle's against what? Resistance. What were the what did Jesus have to battle against in his disciples? It's the same thing we have to battle against. Not only in ourselves, often we find ourselves doubting and right, we face certain hardness of heart, sins, but also in the world we face unbelief and hardness of heart. That shouldn't surprise us. We say they're closed, it's impossible. Yeah, that's true. That's, but we should never let that be an excuse. We're to turn our eyes upward. Who's the one who conquered us? He's the same one that can conquer them. The disciples need only to look at their own hearts. When they start judging others for their unbelief, they should only look at their own hearts and understand and be humbled by God's grace in their lives. Yeah, isn't that true? Don't you find in yourself how Satan often uses our sinful desires as a target to try to get us down, right? Sin upon sin. And yet we see daily, don't we? Our need for Christ's subduing grace. We need a king over us. This is him. He's the one. Trust on him. He comes again and again to forgive and grant us the grace and strength to withstand temptations. We understand resistance, don't we? We only look at ourselves. And then we know what we need to face as we talk and share this message with others. Yet our ambition as church should be nothing less than the whole world. Because why? Because Christ is the king of the whole world. Our ambition should be nothing less than that the whole world be conquered for Christ because it belongs to him. Impossible, you say. Christ says, no, it's possible. Look what I did in the lives of my disciples. You don't think that message can do the same in your own life and continue to do that in your own life, but also in the lives of others? Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Go forward. This is his commission, and that's why we rely on his presence and his power. That's why Jesus said in verses 17 and 18, it really brings out the signs. It shows that he's with them. Look at verse 17 and 18. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. All this points to the reversal of the curse, doesn't it? The curse in of Adam and how in Christ who rose from the dead, blessings abound as far as, what's that song, joy to the world? As far as 
the curse is found, blessings are found, right? The blessings reach to that end, to the end of creation. Every one of these signs you'll notice, except for possibly drinking anything deadly, is recorded for us and is fulfilled in the book of Acts. Even the handling of the serpents, you read about that, the Apostle Paul handling a serpent on the island of Malta. It's all recorded in the book of Acts. Okay. These signs, we have to understand, were specifically signs belonging to the time of the apostles. Okay. They belong to the time of the apostles. Who were the apostles? They were the ones who saw Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. They were the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. Especially, you see this in the early establishment of the church, these signs taking place. We won't say much more on that right now, but we need to see deeper than that. People who focus on these things often focus on shallow things, right? It's external, but it's far deeper than that. And I love the way J.C. Ryle says it. He says, let us never forget that Christ's believing church, his embassy in the world is itself a standing miracle is itself a standing sign. The conversion, the perseverance and grace of every member of that church is a sign. It's a wonder to the world. It's as great as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He goes on, the renewal of every member, of every believer, is as great a marvel as the casting out of a devil or of the healing of a sick man or the speaking of a new tongue. Let's thank God for this and be of good courage. You know, it goes far deeper, doesn't it? These signs. It shows in a new life. It shows in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? The nine fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Yeah, called to exercise it. These are fruit of the Spirit, powerful signs that attract the world. The embassy today is embattled. I mean, you, if you were to take a picture of it, I mean, it's, it's, we, we don't see actual pictures of it. You would see pot shots all on it. You see war marks, scars. It's an embassy in battle. It's oppressed. It's besieged. It's persecuted. And that should not surprise us because who did Christ defeat? Satan. Now, Satan is still living. He's defeated, but he's going to use every strength that he has to try to get back at the church. He will target the church. Isn't that what we see happening in our world today? He's targeting the church. He not only wants to target our lives, that's why the battle with sin inside of us is so unceasingly powerful. But we have Christ, the power, the greater power. Christ's embassy, you know, has seemingly died a thousand deaths. You read church history. Oh, it looks like the church died again and died again. But always it rises to life with Christ's resurrection power. Think of your own lives. How you have died to sin in Christ a thousand times. <laughs> and yet, Christ, by faith in Christ, you continue to live. I mean, that's uh, that's the, uh, you say the antinomy, the, the uh, they call it the antinomy of, Christ living in us, and at the same time dealing with the presence of sin. But understand that his kingdom continues to grow. 
Don't think of it as getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The embassies are multiplying. Douglas Wilson has a book called Empires of Dirt. And he distinguishes church and kingdom in this way. He says the church is the center, is at the center of creation. Word and sacrament, right? Lord's Supper, baptism, word. And the church turns the world into... When numerous Christians are worshiping in the way Christians ought to be worshiping, those Christians, whoever they happen to be, whether those Christians are politicians, auto mechanics, teachers, film directors, news anchors, poets, cafeteria workers, they will all begin to live out the kind of Christian life that they have learned. That life they will carry with them, that life of, of glorious submission to Christ. That's what reflects. That's what brings transformation to society. Yeah, it really begins with the family, doesn't it? Because with our own personal selves and with the family and with the church. We need courage, don't we? And that brings us to the final two verses. But, you know, we, we have his presence. We have his power. I mean, you talk about a king. This is not just, you know, our prime minister or our president. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One who is really powerful. The one who is there with us. As the embassy of Christ on earth, we have Christ's power. You see in verse 19 and his presence. You see in verse 20, his power and his presence. Look at verse 19. Then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's a symbol of authority, of power. He's the top of the universe. It's this that gives the church courage to blow the trumpet. And what happened when Israel blew the trumpet around the walls of Jericho? They fell. They crumbled to the ground. Christ will fulfill the prophecy of Daniel 2.44. His kingdom shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms on earth. But his kingdom will stand forever. That's his promise. And now he works with us. This is beautiful. He works in partnership with the church and say, let's go. Brothers and sisters, let's go for it. You know what? I give you the subduing grace in your life, and you know that you have the strength and the courage. You go forward, and you live your life for the glory of your creator. And if necessary, speak some words, but let your life be a testimony. You have his power, but you also have his presence. You have his power by his spirit. It's about to be poured out at Pentecost, but you also have his presence. Look at verse 20. And they, the apostles, went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. This is team ministry. <laughs> the Lord with us. The Lord working with the church. It's not just pastors, right? It's just believers, wherever you are. You know, in the, in the office, as a teacher, as, as a mechanic, as students. Um, wherever you're working, it's just bearing testimony to Christ's kingship in your life. Verse 20 summarizes really the book of the of Acts 
in one line. Here you see the entire book of Acts in one line, verse 20. What beautiful words. The Lord working with them, partnering, sharing. You know, in building our families and our churches on God's word, may we by faith together see how rich we really are. Do you see it? You're part of an embassy. The embassy of his kingdom. And you see the glory of his kingdom. And you see the kingdom expanding. And its fullness is coming when the Lord returns. Mark ends his gospel, no, not with fear, but with Christ on the throne. May this be an encouragement to you and me. Christ is on the throne today, even today. The kingdom is here. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's managing affairs in just the way he wants it to. And he's growing his kingdom when and will he wants to. Many times, I know in this past year, perhaps we've been discouraged. But this quote from Corrie ten Boom, who herself lived through terrible times of World War II, she said this. If you look at the world, if you're only listening to the news, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look to God, you'll be at rest. Distressed, depressed, at rest. What you don't hear on the world news, and this is a fact, is that the Middle East is breaking apart. Islam is falling apart. The cracks are there. One of the ambassadors of Christ's kingdom from Middle East Reform Fellowship, we call him an ambassador, he has said, cracks are everywhere. And youth by the thousands, youth by the thousands are coming to Christ. There's a new generation. They can't keep up with all the discipleship and the work. When's the last time you heard this on CBC or on the news? Probably not. Something else. In Iran, as of 1979, there were only 500 known Christians from a Muslim background. 2010, it grew from 500 to 175,000, according to the Joshua Project. Today, the average estimate of Christians within Iran, they say, ranges from 300,000 to a million, according to mission experts. Operation World lists Iran as the fastest-growing evangelical church in the world. More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1,000 years. There's an article called A Thousand Years in Waiting. Christ is on the throne. He's doing his work. Don't despair. Trust in him. You are the embassy in his kingdom. Live for his honor and glory. Enjoy him, taste him, feed upon him, serve him. You have a message. You have a commission. You have his power. You have his presence with you. And through the gospel, Christ brings forth new lives, new families. Yes, to all creation, right? A new creation. With the gospel of Mark, 
we conclude with a heartfelt and hearty amen. That's how the gospel ends. Amen. So be, so let it be, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the meantime, use us for the expansion of your kingdom.